The scripture reading for today comes from Mark 15, verses 15 through 25. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. This is the word of the Lord. I have a hard enough time not being emotional when I don't get that kind of lead in. Um, Thank you. That was wonderful. That was wonderful. It is always a delight to be here. Um, even on a gloomy day like today, um, the, the gloominess of the day does not match that palpable energy that is out there right now. You can tell that creation is just about to burst um, right out there. I will know it soon because the pollen will hit me and it will alert me to the fact that um, the beauty comes with a price there. The gloominess of the day, though, probably matches the topic um, when uh, Jim called me and said, would you, would you be willing to preach? I was, of course, delighted, always love coming here. And then he said, um, your topic is the humiliation of Jesus. <laughs> well, that should certainly stir them up. Um, and, uh, uh, but uh, it, it's a topic that we need to look at, and it's, it's great to be here with you to do that. Um, like many of you, uh, I'm sure um, I'm an amateur history buff. Amateur, not because I, I, I don't like it, but because I like it too much and I have to shield myself from it. Um, you know, life interferes with wanting to do the things that we really want to do. Um, we have to work. We have jobs. Um, there was someone, I don't even remember who it was, but they had a brilliant idea that said that college was entirely wasted on college-age kids. Being around them all the time, with some notable exceptions, I think this is, you know, absolutely true. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just, you know, you were granted some money, you worked for a while, and then right about the time you hit your 40s, then you could go back and spend four years just studying whatever it was that you wanted to study. I don't know how we work that out exactly, but um, it would be awfully fun to do it. I, I have to shield myself. When I start delving into some historical period I can find myself, I look up a few days later and go, wait a minute, I have bills to pay. What am I doing? The area of history that seems to attract me the most is the Second World War. I just find it a fascinating period of time. And um, I have an uncle who was a veteran 
gave me a number of his books, and, and I, I just find myself plowing through At Dawn We Slept and all of these kinds of books like that, watching movies about that time period. There's so many features of that war that just never cease to amaze me. I've written a few of them down here. I don't know if any of you saw the uh, Ken Burns documentary called The War. If you haven't, it is worth watching. It's just fascinating. And one of the statistics that he included in that documentary highlighted to what degree our entire economy was turned into this engine of war making for a few years. In 1941... More than 3 million cars were made in the United States. During the entire duration of the war, 139. Unbelievable. The way an entire country suddenly was focused on this one war. I remember uh, reading, I think it was in a Stephen Ambrose book, as the, uh, the Germans were reduced to using horses to transport their stuff back and forth. Meanwhile, endless columns of deuce-and-a-half trucks carried our supplies through France there, and one of the Germans apparently said, who could fight such a people? That they can cross an ocean and be bringing all of this, and here we are a few hundred miles from our home, and we're, we're carrying things around on horses here. The whole economy turned into a war-making machine. Second thing, the incredible lack of information. The availability of real-time information about what is going on around our world today, it, it becomes so seamless that we don't notice it's there. I cannot imagine the thought of an entire navy being able to sail up to Hawaii and then attack, and our not know. It seems like we can know anything about anyone, anywhere, in real time, and find out about it with one click on the internet today. Even the thought of having to find out information a week behind or more from what was going on in the war across the oceans. I, uh, I was going through a box of collectibles, um, which is, I guess, what we call our stuff that I, I hate throwing out. Um, and... I had a letter, and it was from World War II. And I, it was interesting because I didn't know who had written the letter. I knew the name. Uh, the person's name was Cecil Sutter. But for the life of me, I could not think of a relative that I had whose name was Cecil Sutter. So I didn't know why I had the letter. And I, I finally, I talked to my mom. It was one of my grandfather's neighbors um, with whom he was very good friends. And somehow my grandfather had gotten the letter. And it was talking in the letter about hoping um, that the Japanese would accept the surrender terms of the Allied powers. So you could tell where he was, that he was there in Germany after the war in Europe had ended, but the war in the Pacific had not ended. And he's talking about things in a way that you can tell only has the barest information of what's going on. We knew so little about what was happening on the other side of the world from us. Such an incredible lack of information the terrible carnage inflicted by one nation against another, the things that the Axis powers did to the nations they had conquered and the things that the Allies had to do back to get them to surrender, it is devastation on a scale I can't fully get my head around. I've been to places in Europe and seen some of the leftovers, but to be in those moments, I can't really 
imagine what it was like. One feature stands out to me more than others, though. It's the issue of courage. I, I, I've never really had to, in a serious way, display courage. I have my minor moments when your food wasn't properly prepared and you have to stand up to that waiter and say, no, you're going to have to redo this. Brave, brave moments. Just asking for another chapter um, in, uh, in Kennedy's book, Profiles and Courage there. I, it, I, I, you know, I, it's embarrassing, but I guess it's reflective of how safe of a place we live in. But about the closest some of us have to get to courage is going out from behind that wall in a paintball game. <laughs> Isn't it amazing, those of you who've played paintball, how much adrenaline can churn inside your body when there is nothing more at stake than a paint splat? It hurts a little, and yet you, you find yourself almost quivering with the emotion of having to... If those of you who've done it, I see some head shaking out there. You know what it's like. That's about as close as I've ever had to get to martial courage. When I watch a Saving Private Ryan and try to imagine the thought of getting off that troop transport and going out to the beach, I can't get my head around it. I've talked to my sons before as we've seen different movies here or there and situations where people had to show courage and, and have said things to them like, I pray that if I ever have to face that kind of moment, that I'll have the courage to face it like a man. But I've never had to do that. I can't quite get my head around what kind of bravery it takes to step into that situation. It's a kind of courage that we can relate to even if we're only relating to it vicariously. We see someone doing that and we can appreciate the courage they're showing. I want to talk to you today about a different sort of courage, not a martial courage, an entirely different kind of courage, the courage to suffer wrong and not respond. The courage to suffer grave injustice and not respond in like manner. There are times when we are wronged. We often do things where we deserve the kind of mistreatment that we get, but that's not always the case. There are times when we are genuinely wronged, when someone hurts us, harms us, mistreats us, and we don't deserve it. And there are times when we have the power to pay people back for the wrong that they have done to us. There are times when it lies within our power to make them hurt the way that they have hurt us. It takes courage to suffer wrong and not respond. I would argue that you could probably measure the amount of courage that it takes. That you can measure it because it's the sum of two different factors. One is the gravity of the injustice and the other is the power of the victim. 
What I mean by the gravity of the injustice is that if you get treated badly for doing something bad, well, that's not an injustice. You're just getting what you deserve. I don't know what y'all's teenage years were like, but mine were basically a a string of of my doing the right thing and my parents fussing at me for no reason at all. (laughs) At least that's my recollection of it. My parents might give a different opinion. They might say it was more like 60-40 or something. I, I don't know. Okay, we know that this is not true, but there were those isolated moments that I can look back on and say, you know, I was right, and they were wrong. But the vast majority of times, that really wasn't the way that it worked. The vast majority of times, dadgummit, they were actually right, um, and and I deserved the um, tongue lashing that I was so rightly deserving of getting. Sometimes, the the stuff that happens to us, we deserve. I I had... (laughs) fascinating student this last semester in an evening class, and she had one of the most brilliant lines I've ever heard. She said, everything happens for a reason, but sometimes the reason is we're stupid and we make bad choices. (laughs) It's very hard to argue with that because it's so dead come true. Sometimes we deserve what we're getting, but sometimes we don't. And the less we deserve the bad treatment that we're getting, the more courage it takes not to respond back in kind. The power of the victim, when a person has no ability to strike back, there's no particular honor in their not doing so. But when we do have the power to strike back, when we do have the power to inflict on the person who has hurt us the same kind of hurt they're giving us, When we have that power in our hands, and we don't, when we have been gravely wronged, and we have the power to do something about it, and we don't respond, that is where true courage is found. There is no greater example, indeed there could be no greater example of this than the life of Jesus. There was No one more innocent, no perpetrators more guilty, no one with more power to do something about it. And yet, he held back. No one more innocent, no perpetrators more guilty, no one with more power to do something about it. And yet, he held back. You know the scene in which Jesus' humiliation takes place. You know the the circumstances in which we find Jesus at this time. He has already been to the garden. He's been arrested. He's been uh, tried before the religious leaders of the day and handed over to the Romans. And it's clear from the Gospels that the group that was the most active in trying to get rid of Jesus was a group that you know of called the Sadducees. You know, there's so many different names when you start to look at the Gospels from the Sadducees to the Pharisees to the, the Zealots and Essenes, if we were to look outside of the Bible. You've got all of these different groups, and they can tend to run together. The truth is that they were quite different groups. Jesus argues the most with the Pharisees. It's not because he dislikes the Pharisees the most. It's because he's the closest to the Pharisees. Our religion is quite close to Pharisaic religion. 
These were people who, like us, believed in the resurrection, who believed that God chose us graciously and we should respond back in obedience. The reason Jesus argues with them so much is, well, it's the same reason if you think of who you argue with, it's not total strangers, it's your siblings. My siblings lost innumerable arguments through the years, mainly because they spent their entire childhoods being so wrong about everything. And as the oldest child in the family, it was my job to help them through that, you know, difficult process. I never really understood why my parents had the other children, having achieved... Okay, never mind. Um, <laughs> my parents might argue with that one, too. Apparently, I was the worst of the children as a, as a small child um, there, so I got it all out of my system. Um, the, the Pharisees were the ones that Jesus argued with the most because the Pharisees and Christians were very similar. In fact, if you look at Acts 15, you'll see a line in there where it says, Now, some of the Christians who were Pharisees argued such and such. This is 15 chapters into the book of Acts. And there are still people who can be both Pharisees and Christians at the same time. The group that Jesus disagreed with the most is the group that he argued with the least, the Sadducees. Jesus had no time whatsoever for the Sadducees. They were essentially collaborators with Rome. They had been given control of the temple as a reward And they were people that Jesus didn't agree with on anything. When he speaks to the Sadducees, look carefully in your Gospels, and you will see Jesus' words just drip with contempt for them. He's the one who says things like, you err because you don't know your Bibles, when he starts talking to them. Jesus and the the Sadducees are quite removed from one another. And as the ones who controlled the temple... When Jesus said things about how the temple will be destroyed, they took that as a direct threat and worked with the Romans to get rid of him. Pilate was the only one who really had the power to do what the Sadducees wanted him to do. Pilate really normally would not have been in Jerusalem. If you've been to Israel, you undoubtedly would have gone over to the coast to the town of Caesarea. Well, that's where Pilate lived. In fact, there's a stone that they found, and you can see a replica of it there in Caesarea even today, and it's got Pilate's name right uh, on the stone. Pilate stayed over in this luxurious villa that looked right out over the Mediterranean there. That was his home. He was only in Jerusalem because they were getting ready to celebrate a festival about how a group of oppressed people threw off the yoke of a foreign empire, Passover. You can imagine how much Pilate wanted to be right there in the Antonia Fortress saying, we're not going to have any of that kind of stuff this year. That's the reason Pilate was there. And Pilate was apparently completely unconvinced of Jesus' crime. Luke 23 says, Pilate then called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was perverting the people And here I have examined him in your presence and have not found this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death. At least the leaders who were opposed to Jesus actually thought Jesus had done something wrong. Pilate knew he hadn't done anything wrong. And he's going to kill him anyway. You know that the events leading up to the death of Jesus 
are those events that we think of as the humiliation of Jesus. It begins with his flogging or his scourging. If you've seen the movie The Passion, you know that um, this is by far the most difficult part of the movie to watch. The, the actual crucifixion itself almost is, is, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, it's almost easier to watch than seeing the beating that they display in the movie. The, the, Mel Gibson took a lot of heat um, for elements of how the passion was done, and some of it was rightly deserved. He was not as clear as he should have been in distinguishing among the groups who opposed Jesus, and it, it certainly opened up the movie to charges of being anti-Semitic or at least fostering anti-Semitism. The other criticism that he received, though, I, I'm not sure was deserved, and that was they said that he focused too much on the scourging, too much on the flogging. Now, the reason for people's having said that was that the Gospels don't say very much about it. If you look at all four of the Gospels, they each just refer to it in a verse, saying after he was flogged. And so some have said, well, maybe Jesus was only beaten lightly, and we shouldn't have given that much attention to it in the movie. I have two reasons why I don't think this is the case. One is it has to do with how crucifixion itself worked. It's, it's difficult for me to imagine that this can be true. But we know from antiquity that crucifixions were supposed to last three to four days with the victim on the cross for that length of time dying slowly from exhaustion asphyxia. That they would slowly suffocate as they were no longer strong enough to lift themselves up to breathe. Three to four days of agony. There was a perverse, inverted relationship between how long you lasted on the cross and how severely you were beaten beforehand. If you were beaten lightly, you would only end up suffering more on the cross. If you wanted to die quickly on the cross, it would only happen because you were beaten severely beforehand. Jesus doesn't last three to four days. Jesus lasts three to four hours on the cross. The most logical explanation for this is that it was because he had been brutalized badly before he ever got to the cross. A second reason comes from the Gospel of John. If you go to Jerusalem, one of the things you'll just have to do is you start at the top of the Mount of Olives and you make your way down and you see the churches that commemorate the different events of the, the night of Jesus' arrest. And then you make your way back up to the old city and you go through the Lion's Gate or St. Stephen's Gate there and you begin the Via Dolorosa that leads all the way to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And at the first station of the cross there, what you find is this arch. It's the Ecce Homo arch. This is an arch that's there, and it, it's not from Jesus' day, but it commemorates the spot where Pilate brought Jesus out to the leaders and said, Ecce Homo, which means in Latin, behold the man. Well, the context of this was that Pilate, knowing Jesus was not guilty, said, well, I'll just have him beaten and surely that will suffice. And so having had him beaten, he brings him out and says, in our vernacular, for heaven's sakes, look at him. Surely this is enough. If he had only been beaten a little bit, smacked around here or there, then that would have fallen flat. 
There would be no way that Pilate could say, surely this has got to be enough. Isn't this satisfactory? He could only say something like this if Jesus had truly been beaten badly. Jesus endured this beating, and then the mocking began. They clothed him in a purple cloak, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him and began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews. They, they stripped him, excuse me, they struck his head with a reed, spat upon him, and knelt down in homage to him, mocking him. I'm sure it was painful. The cloak on his fresh wounds, the crown of thorns being struck on the head. But the real pain had to have been psychological. Hearing the people who were beating him, mocking him. And his response. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. No one was ever more poised to unleash upon his tormentors all of the wrath of heaven. And with every opportunity to do so, he did not. I find it fascinating to look at the words of Jesus on the cross because, as you know, there are seven. um, And you've probably heard sermons from them before. Um, There are three that are directed um, specifically toward God. Jesus' first word and his only word um, in Mark is, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? He says later, it is finished. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Those words directed towards God. His words to the humans around him have such an incredible tone. Concern about his mom. Mother, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. To the the rebel on the side of him, truly today. You'll be with me in paradise. Even that most vulnerable statement, I thirst. There is one line that connects these two groups. The words to God and the words to others. It's the one that has both audiences in mind. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. I don't have that. In my heart. It's not my nature. I I jokingly say that my spiritual gifts are awesomeness and vengeance. (laughs) I try to exercise one more than the other. Um, There's a reason why we're not allowed laser cannons on top of our cars. (laughs) There'd be fewer people on the road on I-65 in the morning. I can tell you that. There'd be little piles of ash here and there from where I had sent them on to meet Jesus. I just, I struggle because my heart wants vengeance. It, it, it's, a, 
it really is a difficult thing for me. It's not always for myself personally. I have a strong desire to protect my wife and my kids, which I think is entirely appropriate, but I, I have to struggle with this one. Father, forgive them is not my first thought. With the power to call down all the forces of heaven, Jesus responded only with mercy. To suffer wrong and not respond. That's where courage lies. It's a fine balance that we're called to strike. We are nowhere called to be doormats. And Jesus was anything but. He was perfectly willing to push back when the moment called for it. Um, one of my, my fame, or most uh, treasured images of Jesus is as he makes his own whip before he goes in to cleanse the temple. What were the thoughts going through his mind as he braided together that whip? This was no doormat. And we're not absolved of the responsibility to protect other people. The language of non-resistance is for ourselves. It's not for uh, uh, negating our responsibility to protect others. But there are moments, moments that take wisdom to discern, but moments when we are called upon to not strike back. One of my favorite scenes in To Kill a Mockingbird, it's probably the pivotal scene in the movie, is the scene in which Mr. Ewell spits on Atticus. And and what we want is for him to hit him. We want him to just with one fell blow put him on the ground. And he doesn't. He wipes the spit from his face and just walks away. We have to pick our moments with wisdom, the moments to, in Selma-like fashion, not strike back, to respond with courage rather than in like manner. I've said throughout that courage is in not responding, but that's not really accurate. It's not responding in kind. When we absorb the blows, we are definitely responding. It is a response that is devastating to those who would attack us. It's overwhelming. It's irresistible. By the time Jesus died... Even his executioner was at the foot of the cross saying, truly, this was the Son of God. May God give us the grace and the wisdom and above all else, the courage that when wronged, we don't respond back with wrong, but instead respond back with grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this passage delves into territory that I'm not comfortable with. I don't like thinking of the humiliation of the person to whom I've committed my life. I especially don't like thinking of the fact that the Romans are nothing more 
than a stand-in for myself. That it was not just they who humiliated you, but it was me. It was us. Father, help us to emulate the life of your son and to respond back to the salts, the slings and arrows that come at us with grace and forgiveness rather than vengeance. I pray this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.